and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Tibble. One word strikes fear into the hearts of the most intrepid journalists seeking out the truth. Libel. England has long had a reputation for some of the most punitive libel laws around, so that by the 90s and noughties, London's High Court was known as the libel capital of the world. All manner of corrupt oligarchs and dodgy politicians have had recourse to the libel courts, as well as some genuinely aggrieved parties. And while there have been some major reforms in the last decade, it's not gone away either. Earlier this year, my colleagues at Open Democracy revealed how the Wagner Group's Yevgeny Prigozhin was actually given a special license by HM Treasury to help him sue a British investigative journalist. And parliamentary debates have argued that lawfare, legal actions designed to target and discredit individuals, are alive and well. Here to take us through this heart of darkness is the journalist and media law consultant, David Banks. Welcome to The Bunker, David. Hello, sir. David, last week, The Sun and quite a few people on Twitter potentially got themselves in some difficulty with our libel laws. How did this happen? Well, whether The Sun's in trouble remains to be seen, but certainly the people who dived in after The Sun did find themselves in some hot water. Obviously, The Sun published a story about a then unnamed top BBC presenter in association with purchase of compromising photographs and things like this. But they didn't name anybody. They just said this top BBC presenter. And social media being what social media is, that then just became a guessing game. And people piled in suggesting all sorts of names. And it, it kind of depended who their sort of best-known presenter was to them. And so we got all sorts of names being thrown in the hat. And several of them then were threatened. The presenters themselves took to social media to deny any involvement. And they found themselves in quite a combative situation with some of these social media users. And where they weren't getting an immediate apology and deletion, then they did start making legal threats. They were saying, I've taken a screenshot of this. This is now in the hands of my solicitor. And certainly with this week, one of the presenters wrong named Jeremy Vine, he published an apology and retraction from one of the people who'd wrongly identified him. And that person has agreed to pay £1,000 to the Motor Neuron Disease Association in lieu of a settlement of the libel action that Mr. Vine was no doubt intent on taking had he not received that apology. That case does very much seem to underline one of the classic sort of cop-outs of, of this, which people often say, which is, well, as long as somebody's not personally identifiable. But you don't have to actually name someone. There can be enough hints for it to be quite clearly identifiable to just some people. Oh, absolutely, yeah. If you leave a kind of trail of breadcrumbs leading to identification, then that's identification. So what the claimant has to show a court is that they are identifiable from the details that the publisher or broadcaster has has, uh, has put out there. Let's back up. Why are the libel laws actually necessary in a free society? What's to stop people from exercising their free speech to say whatever they want? Well, I suppose you'd have to delve back into the centuries of history of defamation law that we've had in this country. I mean, it's a very ancient right. Your right to a reputation is a very ancient concept in England and Wales. We've had slander laws for centuries. You know, way back when, if you slandered someone, they could have your, your tongue cut out. And, well, they don't go that far now. They just sort of extract your wallet instead. 
But it is, it is a very well-established concept here in the UK because there are defamation laws up in Scotland, which is a separate jurisdiction, but it has very similar defamation laws to those of England and Wales. And so it's a well-established concept in this country that your reputation is like a personal possession. And if it's damaged without legal excuse, then you can be compensated for that damage. Now, if you visit some of our European neighbours, you'll find that defamation laws there are much less well-developed if they exist at all. But there, they've always been far more focused on privacy as a means by which people could control the, the information that might be published about them. A lot of the English and Welsh libel laws have, have really sort of evolved by the late 20th century to make London this capital of the world libel tourism. How did this happen? Well, I think it was the fact that the law had developed in a way that made it quite favourable towards the, the claimants. There were a number of presumptions that the courts had over the years established that definitely made it much easier to sue for libel here than, say, in the USA and, and other countries like that. And those presumptions were things like the presumption that all libels are false. So if you, if you publish something which is defamatory, the presumption the court made was that it was not true. So... That helped the claimants out. There was also a presumption that all claimants have a good reputation. They arrive at court with a good reputation. Now, we obviously know that's not true. There are all sorts of people out there who have absolutely terrible reputations. <laughs> but if our case was, if our, our defense was, this person's such an out-and-out -out rogue, scoundrel, villain, they have no reputation to damage, then we would have to show that to the court. We would have to show why this person was someone who had no reputation at all. And actually, the courts were very slow to agree with that reasoning. They would usually say that past misdeeds diminished the reputation in some way, and it might mitigate the damages a little bit, but they were very slow to agree that someone had no reputation at all. So these things combined made it quite easy for claimants to bring action, and they beat the path to the High Court in London, as you say, to do so. Yes, and I saw uh, a recent case, a defamation action in the High Court, which was essentially stopped in its tracks by the judge, where um, the issue had been that an email had been circulated to a dozen people or a dozen variants of the same email. Half a dozen of the people weren't known. And of the half a dozen who were known, the responses from them tended to be things like, I already had a negative opinion of that person, or I can't even remember opening the email. Or, it doesn't seem to have had any effect on my perception of them. I mean, the other thing I think maybe is worth coming in, actually, on this, this change that happened in the last century. The name Carter Ruck is well identified with libel actions, obviously, because of the, not just the law firm that bears the name of its founder, but Peter Carter Ruck, the late founder of this firm. He was quite strategic about this. I mean, he would go around, you, you mentioned the balance of, of this at the start, the idea that you begin thinking almost guilty until proven innocent rather than innocent proven guilty. That was down to a series of precedents that he was seeking a lot of the time in some of his early cases going back to the 1950s. Yeah, I mean, Carter Rock was very active. Libel litigants and frequently appeared in the pages of, of Private Eye, often when threatening action against, against Private Eye. But yes, out of that, a number of very aggressive 
litigation firms, seeing perhaps the example that Carter Rugg had set, saw that, that London was the place to, to bring actions. The other thing that made London a very favourable place to sue for, for libel was that the High Court would hear actions for publication overseas. As long as there was some form of publication here in the UK, then the High Court would hear the actions here. And that could be quite dramatic at times because you would get cases where the publication hadn't happened in the UK, but it was argued that it could have been seen. For example, you get this with web hits. And if you say as a website, well, here is a complete log of every visitor we've had. We haven't had a single person in the UK visit us. But it was successfully argued in the past that you might potentially have somebody in the UK who'd have no obstacle to seeing it. Absolutely. And so this made the the UK the venue to, to sue because of that that willingness to take actions from overseas. Now, that is one of the crucial changes that happened in the Defamation Act 2013 was that if the UK was not the main venue of publication, then the courts would suggest to the claimant that they should take their action in whichever country did have the main uh, amount of publication and views. I want to come to the 2013 Act later, but just focusing on that time where we were really the sort of libel capital, what was the implication of that? I mean, what were the kinds of people bringing cases at the time? Well, it was still the preserve of, of the the rich and famous, you know, and, and people of, of substantial means. Because you have to remember, there's no legal aid to bring a libel action. We didn't have crowdfunding then in the way that we do now. And so you were looking at people of substantial means, substantial position in society, people with a reputation and the means by which to defend it, and access to firms like Carter Rock and others who were willing to very aggressively take on the case. But you were seeing some of the cases that did give cause for concern were cases brought by Russian oligarchs who'd amassed fortunes in the in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you would have US writers examining these people, you know, looking at how they'd amassed their fortunes. And they would then sue them in the in the in the London courts to the consternation of the USA, where you have First Amendment freedom of speech and and a very different attitude to these sorts of publications. It's quite an ordeal being sued. I mean, it can take over your life. It's energy sapping. Can you give us a sense of what it's like to be on the receiving end of a defamation action? Well, I think a a good example of that is the case of of Simon Singh. He's a very well-known science writer. He wrote Fermat's Last Theorem. It was one of those popular science mathematics books that shot him to stardom. And he wrote a piece uh, for The Guardian about the British Chiropractic Association questioning the claims made about um, uh, chiropractic. And he was sued for libel for this. They didn't sue The Guardian, they sued Simon Singh, who was a freelance writer. And this took took up two years of his life, cost him very substantial sums of money. Now, he was assisted, there was then people in London, that, you know, London sceptics, people who were questioning of these sorts of things, who, who banded together to, to give him some support, to enable him to, to appeal against the initial loss in the high court, which was eventually successful. But the amount of time it took for a, for a freelance writer was inordinate and, you know, deeply, deeply damaging to him, having to fight this battle and eventually win, of course. But nevertheless, it was, it was, um, it was a very difficult time for him. What was the old Reynolds defence, which was under the old libel laws, and what were its shortcomings? 
Well, the relative defence uh, came out of a case of um, the Sunday Times, who was sued by the uh, former teacher of the Irish Republic, Albert Reynolds. They'd written a story questioning issues around the appointments of high court judges. And he sued them. And they, they came up with the, advanced the idea of privilege at common law, a, a principle that certain kinds of public interest story ought to have a defence of privilege. If they were raising important matters of public interest, they were doing so responsibly. And the court agreed with that concept, with that idea in Reynolds. Unfortunately, the Sunday Times hadn't jumped over all the hurdles that the, the High Court would have liked them to. And so they actually didn't win that case. They didn't, they didn't successfully defend themselves. But Reynolds was very much about responsible journalism. You know, looking at things like your source of your story. Is it an important story that should be pursued? What have you done to verify it? Who've you, who else have you talked to? The tone of your journalism as well. Are you, the courts like something called neutral reportage, and only a judge could come up with a term like that for, for UK journalism. That's something that, you know, sometimes UK newspapers have found difficult, that kind of neutrality of tone. And also, fun, you know, really important, giving the subject of your story an opportunity to respond to the allegations you're, you're publishing about them. That was really important. And again, where sometimes um, newspapers have failed. That's something that journalists routinely do now. It's the idea of the right of reply. You, you, you contact somebody at least several days, typically, and certainly several hours before a story breaks, just to say, we are going to be making these allegations about you. What do you have to say about that? But that's primarily done with that in mind. It absolutely is, yeah. And so it's, it's really important. And as you said, depending on the complexity of the story, sometimes you might give people several days. Sometimes it's, it's, it's much less because it is simply giving people an opportunity to deny something. But this is where things get complicated as well, because sometimes in the stories that get tackled, you've got privacy looming as well, especially in stories about personal relationships and things like this. You've got both libel and privacy. Now, in libel, a claimant can't do anything to stop you publishing. They can threaten you, but there's no legal means by which they can prevent you publishing. But if your story engages privacy matters and you give them notice that you're going to publish the story about them, they could run to a high court judge, get an interim injunction against you and legally prevent you from publishing the story. So publishers can find themselves in a really difficult situation here where they're, where they're very carefully timing their approach to the, the subject of the story in order to avoid that privacy injunction landing on them and preventing them from running the story. And they do interact in a really interesting way. I mean, I know a few years ago, there was a huge furore, not just about injunctions, but particularly super injunctions, you know, the idea of injunctions that are so sensitive that you can't even refer to the existence of an injunction. But that seems to have had a sort of correcting effect in that they've become much less popular now and far fewer of these super injunctions are actually issued or even applied for these days. That's right. We don't always know how many are in place, but but the word is that they're, they're not as popular as they once were. Similarly, anonymized injunctions, which is where you can say that injunction is served on you, but you can't say who is the subject of that injunction, don't seem to be as popular. And, and it might well be because the, the effect of social media is such that sometimes these injunctions can be frustrated by the, the mob out there who engage in detective work and um, reveal the details of who it's about, even though the publisher, the broadcaster, is adhering by the any, any injunction that's been served upon. Them. 
the libel laws had a huge overhaul a decade ago. You mentioned the Defamation Act 2013, and amongst other things, that introduced some very important new defenses, which have had a massive impact on defamation law. Honest opinion and public interest, is it worth running through both of those defenses and why they're both so important? Yeah, I mean, honest opinion, first of all, is it's it's developed from the old defence of fair comment, and the courts had indeed already started referring to the defence's honest opinion or honest comment in the run-up to the Defamation Act, because they felt that fair comment was slightly confusing, because fair comment makes it almost sound like you have to be fair or even-handed when expressing an opinion. And the court said that that's not, that's not the case. You can be as outspoken, as vitriolic as you want, as long as it's your honestly held opinion. And that opinion is based on facts that are either true or they're privileged. They come out of a court case or parliamentary proceedings, some sort of privileged circumstance. And if that's the case, if it is your, a statement of your honestly held opinion, then it has this sound defence now, in life, it's a statutory defence in the Defamation Act of 2013. It's also worth saying one of the reasons why it's so wide-ranging is that it even applies if something turns out to not be true. Now, that doesn't necessarily absolve you from having to do all the responsible things you did. So you still have to go to someone for comment. You still have to check your facts and show that you were robust in how you handled that. But if, for example, you were fed false information and said something that wasn't true because it was your honest opinion on behalf of everything else that you've done, that defence still holds, which is a huge shift from where we were a decade ago. Absolutely. I mean, it does change the kind of nature of public debate and public comments on these these types of uh, public affairs. Absolutely. This other defence around public interest, I mean, there are more than two, but I, I honed in on these two because they've really had the most dramatic effect in terms of their use as defences. Yeah, the public interest defence. It sounds quite simple in the in the in the act. It basically asks, is this matter is this a matter of public interest? So is the story that you are covering something that is of public interest? And do you believe it's in the public interest to publish what it is you're about to, to publish? Well that sounds really easy. Well we'll just tick yes to both and away we go. However, the second part, you know, why you think it's in the public interest to publish will still come back to the principles established in Reynolds. So it will be, what's the source of this information? What's it about? Is it something that's a really important matter of public interest? Have you gone to the subject of the story, giving them that opportunity to respond to the matter? So it's still an encouragement of responsible journalism in order to get this defence. And it's why newspapers conducting investigations, wanting this defence, are assiduous in working their way through those principles, making sure they give people proper opportunity to reply, you know, looking for verification, testing the sources before they publish. And there's also in the Act a significant harm test. Can you explain that? That's right. That was an important change. It raised the bar of what a claimant has to show. Previously, a claimant would show that the, that the words published were damaging to their reputation in some way. Now, the, the Act defines that as seriously harmful. If, if it's an individual suit for libel, they have to show serious harm to their reputation. And the court's applying you know, an ordinary reader test to this. What would an ordinary sensible person 
looking at this information, what would they think it did to the claimant's reputation? But it does raise that, like I said, it raises the bar of what a claimant has to show. Now, for corporate claimants, and corporate claimants can be very aggressive, there's a slightly different test. They have to show serious financial damage or the likelihood of it. And that's a very important change because they've got to show some impact on their bottom line or, or a, you know, a substantial likelihood of that. Loss of profits, loss of custom, loss of contract, exclusion from a tendering process, something like this where they can show the court a real economic loss or the likelihood of it as a result of what's been published. And that that, that is a very important change. What you used to see a lot of and still see something of is a lot of uh, crocodile tears, shall we say, of people making a claim for libel saying, oh, I've never been so offended in my life and I'm seriously upset and I was weeping and weeping on reading this. And if the court does decide that actually this is a fairly minor <laughs> implied slight, it offers a lot of reassurance there. While the Defamation Act from 2013 has hugely cut down on a lot of the more frivolous cases, it certainly hasn't eliminated them all, has it? I mean, there are slap cases which are alive and well. What can you tell us about slaps? Well, slaps is a, you know it's a, it's a kind of new term, and I think it's come across from uh, across the pond. A strategic litigation against public participation, or strategic lawsuit against public participation. You know, it's 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 the the idea that. The threat of a legal action is used to discourage publication. Now, I've been a journalist for 35 years, and this has been going on all the time I've been a journalist, is that certain companies, particularly companies, but other, others individuals as well, would use the threat of litigation to discourage coverage of their, their affairs, their, their, you know, any, any stories about them. And it was a means of, you know, that some deployed to just manage their reputation and so you would know you would know that if you were going to do a story about a certain company a certain individual you could guarantee if it was a critical story that a a legal letter would arrive and this is the way the slaps work is that they mire a publisher or broadcaster in legal threat and Sometimes that can have an impact on insurance costs for the, for the company if they take out um, libel insurance, although many UK publishers have abandoned that. So it, it discourages you from carrying content about the, or to carry negative content about these uh, companies or, or individuals. And it's a deliberate tactic on their part to, uh, to discourage negative coverage. There is support in the civil service for anti-slap legislation, and I believe some of this legislation has already been drafted. Do you think there's much scope for this to succeed? Well, it, it will all depend on the detail that, that you know in that in that legislation and what what they how they frame it and what sort of actions they they're trying to exclude. It might be quite difficult to legislate for something that can be a little bit subjective depending on you know which side you're coming from over in the usa and they still get slaps over there but they've got first amendment freedom of speech there and you know, defenses for that if you are publishing about a public figure or a public organization then if they want to sue you for for defamation they have to show malice on your part some sort of wrongful intent or you know malicious motive in you publishing what you did now that would might dramatically change the, the libel landscape in this country. But I don't think there's any intention of legislators to, to go quite that far. But it would, be, it would be interesting to see this 
slap legislation to see what we think it's going to exclude and how it's going to make those judgments as to what is a slap and what isn't. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been a fascinating insight into this very shadowy world and just the sort of thing we love on The Bunker. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll be back very soon with another edition for your delectation and curiosity. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember that you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, Origin Story, Doomsday Watch, Rock and Roll Politics with Steve Richards, Jam Tomorrow, We Are History, and our newest morning offering, Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Seth Tavo. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.